This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We are looking this evening at verses 4 through 12. Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. begin reading, uh, get a running start into our actual text, begin reading in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your holy word, scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation. Father, we pray as we study this passage this evening for light, for the guidance of your spirit, for uh, warm and teachable and malleable hearts to receive your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying Hebrews on Sunday nights. We've seen how uh, just recently, particularly the passage just before this one, part of which we read uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, that the writer is concerned about the maturity of his readers. Uh, he is concerned, as he says, because in verse 11, they have become dull of hearing. In fact, they have been believers long enough that they themselves ought to be teachers, whether in some formal capacity. Uh, He probably has in mind more of an informal capacity, that they ought to be familiar with the things of God, knowledgeable enough of the Scriptures, to be able to instruct uh, infants in Christ. But the problem is they themselves 
once again, it seems, are infants. They seem to have lost ground. They seem to have reverted uh, to their to their spiritual infancy. Uh, they they don't need solid food. They need milk. And he's taking them to task for this. And he's optimistic about that. Verse 3, he says, this we will do. Uh, moving on from the elementary doctrines, the foundational things, uh, to a deepening understanding of other things, um, which all of this seems to have something to do with Melchizedek. Um, maybe as you've studied Melchizedek in Hebrews, you sort of felt like you came under his condemnation, that you weren't quite yet ready for this. Uh, but he, he mentions Melchizedek in verse 10, and then Melchizedek comes up, uh, in, in chapter 7, after he's taken them to task for their slowness to learn. Uh, I think he's really excited about teaching them about Melchizedek, but is afraid they're just not quite there enough to appreciate what he does. And maybe we're there to appreciate what he does about Melchizedek. But he's confident that they will improve. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. But he's not concerned just about their immaturity. He is concerned, he is somewhat fearful about something far more dangerous, the immaturity, the failure to grow itself is dangerous, but he is concerned about absolute rank apostasy. Now it seems as you read Hebrews, uh, we we can gather that those that he was writing to are believers and yet wrestling with what they now have in Christ versus what they once had in Judaism and in the face of persecution, uh, in the face of where they are now are, looking back seems pretty attractive. And he does seem at times concerned that they might be tempted to leave off following Christ and return to their more familiar old ways of Judaism. And he's, as we've seen, taking great pains to show them the superiority of all that they have now over what they had in, in Judaism. As such, that itself was preparatory. It was the shadow of, what, of which what they have in Christ is the, the substance, is the reality. But he's gone from expressing concern about their maturity, their inability to really be taught more about Christ than just the foundational things, as important as those are, to being concerned about apostasy. And in so doing, he writes what uh, many have thought to be one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, especially where it concerns the eternal security of the Christian believer. Or to put it in an interrogatory form, can a Christian lose his salvation? Uh, and so that's what we want to look at here. And he begins with a, a warning beginning in verse 4. And the reason that we read verses 1 through 3 is because verse 4 begins for, linking it with what went before, uh, He says, this we will do, we will move on to other things from the foundational things. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. You'll note that he does not envision some middle ground where they can just sort of remain stagnant. They seem to be reverting back to infancy, and it seems to him that there's the danger they won't stop there, they'll just revert back to being unbelievers. They will apostatize. They will desert the faith. His concern is that they should move forward and that they will do if God permits because the alternative seems to be apostasy, not just treading water. Now, 
He gives this warning in verses 4 through 8, and we've read, um, just as he mentions this list of foundational things in verses 1 and 2, he seems to list here some experiences, some, some of the benefits that have been tasted in 4 and 5. And this is actually part of the difficulty, as we'll see. Is, is, he, is he piles up this list of things, he's talking about Christian's experience. Look at what he says in verse 4. It's impossible to restore again to repentance. Those who have once been enlightened. It's impossible to bring to this place of repentance, and repentance is the, the essence, the hallmark of the Christian life recognizing our sin, recognizing the need of God's grace in Christ. It's impossible to bring to that place of repentance, to have that again, those who once have been enlightened. Now, interestingly, for different reasons, this this reference to having been enlightened has long been linked to baptism. Going back to the second second century, third century, uh, and even up until the times of the Reformation, uh, you'll find this connection with this verse and baptism, different reasons for that, but um, I don't think scripturally you can really support that. Uh, when he speaks of those who have once been enlightened, um, he is, he, I think, simply speaking of those who have come to an understanding of Christian truth, those who have come to understand who Jesus is, those who uh, have, have, to use John's categories, uh, come out of darkness into light. He goes on to list another one. Those who have been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, again, some have compared that to the Lord's Supper. So he's referring to communion there, tasted, heavenly gift. Especially if you think the first enlightenment refers to baptism, the Lord's Supper would be a convenient second. But again, um, there's not a whole lot of way you can support that scripturally. Uh, Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, tasted their uh, seems to refer to to experience. You know, the scriptures say, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Well, that that doesn't mean tasting. It, it, it literally it means to experience the goodness of the Lord, to trust in Him, to look to Him, to pray to Him, and you will see how good you will experience how good the Lord is. Some uh, actually have 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 seen tasted as diminutive. You know, they got just a taste of the Lord. You know, they got just a, a taste as he says here, of the heavenly gift. But they really didn't buy into it. Well, that's not what he's saying either. I don't think he's, he's making small that, ex, that experience. He's just saying that they have. They've tasted, they have experienced the heavenly gift of Christ, of, of salvation that God has provided in Christ. Have shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, or partakers of the Holy Spirit, uh, that they know something of the work of the Holy Spirit. They've seen the Spirit at work uh, in them and around them. Verse 5, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, or perhaps another way of rendering it, they have tasted the good Word of God. Again, tasting, not so much in uh, a literal sense, uh, but again, tasting in terms of experience. They know something of the goodness, the the wealth, the richness, the wisdom, uh, the grace of God's word, of the scriptures. He goes on to say, uh, heaping up again these experiences, they have 
tasted also the powers of the age to come. Now, the age to come uh, refers to that age of the Spirit, that age of grace that was inaugurated with Jesus' ministry, especially with his life, with his, uh, with his death and resurrection, his ascension, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, as distinguished from, to use Paul's description, of this present evil age, this age and its fall, this age and its rebellion against its creator. Uh, and with Christ's ministry, that age to come has uh, invaded this world which is one of the, uh, the things we need to know about who we are as believers, that we are citizens of the age to come. We are citizens of heaven, even though we still live here in this world. Uh, and that creates difficulties, uh, the, the problem of the already and not yet, that we already have so much in Christ, but there's still so much we do not yet have, but that we await. Well, he says that these are people who have shared in the spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and have tasted the powers of the age to come. That's who it's describing here. That, that's the characteristics of this person. And although he, he, he itemizes these, so to speak, he, he lists them singly, they really go together. They describe Christian experience. They really are all of, of one. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, these are all true of you. It's not as though you could, could say that a couple of these are true of you, but others aren't. They all are together. Because together they describe the experience of a Christian. And that's one reason that this passage seems troubling is because he's describing a believer. He's describing a Christian here. And then that's that's sandwiched uh, between two warnings. Verse four, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who experience this. And then verse 6, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Uh, the person who has experienced all this and then falls away is, is insulting Christ. Or as he says, they're crucifying him once again to their own harm. They're holding him up to contempt. Now, what do we make of this? What are we to, to say about this? Uh, what kind of person is this? Who is this he's describing? Is this a genuine, blood-bought believer who loses his salvation? We have to say, no. Anytime you're dealing with a difficult text, you always go to first principles. Always ask the question, okay, what do we know? What is beyond dispute? Or in the scriptures, you might say, uh, what, do we, what do we know? What is plainly taught so that we can interpret the more difficult passages in light of what is more plainly taught? Well, no, we have to say a, a, a genuine blood-bought Christian cannot lose his salvation for a couple of reasons. One, biblical assurance of that. Uh, think of a passage like John chapter 10, uh, verses 27, 28, 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
you cannot say it any more strongly, any more plainly, any more clearly than Jesus states it there. If I save someone, if I give them eternal life, they will never perish. Right? You cannot snatch a, a redeemed person out of Jesus' hand. My Father, who's greater than all, holds them in his hand. They cannot be snatched out of his hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And that includes you, yourself. You cannot snatch yourself out of Jesus' hand. Satan cannot snatch you out of Jesus' hand, out of his Father's hand. So, scripturally, we have to say, absolutely not. A believer cannot be lost. Theologically, by which I mean the scriptures as a whole, uh, we would also have to say, no, a believer cannot be lost. Think of it. God chose the believer in Christ before he created the world. As Paul says, to be holy and blameless in the sight of God. At the cross, Jesus shed his own blood for that chosen elect man or woman. Jesus did not merely make available a potential atonement. Jesus accomplished an actual atonement for that one believer. Jesus didn't die for a mass of people. He died for each one of his elect sheep individually. So that the justice of God toward the sins of that man or woman or child, the justice of God is satisfied. It's poured out. There is no more wrath. There is no more justice to be meted out toward this person. How can such a person go to hell? In the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit drew that person to Christ, turned the lights on, spiritually speaking, made life where there was death. And that person saw their need of Christ, repented, believed in him and was saved. To say that a genuine believer can be lost is to mean somehow, something, someone has thwarted the sovereign uh, choice of the Father, the redeeming work of Christ, and the calling and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Are you prepared to say that? I'm not either. So we would have to say no. What the writer to the Hebrews is describing here is not a genuine, the real article gold seal of approval, Christian, who somehow falls away and is ultimately lost. That's our starting point. Based on other clear teaching of Scripture, based on the teaching of Scripture as a whole, and and what salvation is. So what is going on here? Who is this person that he has in mind here? Well, let me give you some other images from Scripture, because this is not an isolated thing. We encounter this. What makes this difficult? is how how closely to a Christian he paints this person to be. But we've encountered this before. All of you who've been through the Explorers class have encountered it in the parable of the sower. And in your own reading, I'm sure you've heard that parable in other places. You encounter this person in the seed that germinates in rocky soil, the seed that germinates in thorny soil, and it bears fruit, it grows, it produces. Something happens, right? Then it dies, it withers, it wilts, it goes away. What's happening there is no different from what he's talking about here in Hebrews. But simply because Jesus doesn't elaborate so much on on his condition, it doesn't trouble us quite as much. So, the seed in rocky or thorny soil. We also encounter this person in the one Jesus describes as the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. 
in a sense. A person who takes the work of God and says that's an evil thing. We encounter this, perhaps the, 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 the example of this, we encounter this in Judas Iscariot. Judas went out with the twelve, called by Jesus, was sent out by them, engaged in preaching, presumably engaged even in miracles. He was one of those who came back and, you know, praising God, even the spirits were subject to them, right? And yet, he's the one who betrays Jesus, turns from Jesus, and Jesus in John chapter 17 refers to him as the son of destruction, the son of perdition, or the one doomed to destruction. Never was one of God's people. Simon uh, Magus, we see this in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, interesting case, uh, where Philip is, is ministering, this man Simon had been a magician, people were all impressed with him, saying uh, he was something special, he, saying he was somebody great, they paid attention to him and all of this. Uh, but these people believed when Philip preached the gospel, and we read in Acts 8.13, even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Uh, the apostles, hearing the gospel, had come to Samaria. They send Peter and John. He came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw the Spirit was given to laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Remember, this guy became a believer, was baptized under, under Philip. Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Is Simon a believer? Could be. Could be he was just caught up in the power and the, the, the outward manifestations of the Spirit and all of that, and it just was getting led astray. And humbly praying, well, Peter, forgive me, pray for me, as I don't want that to happen. But the language Peter uses of him is very strong. And maybe Peter is even challenging because of his greed, because of his, uh, his, his fascination just with these external things, whether he really is even a believer at all. So he may be a case of someone who is or is in danger of being like what the writer to the Hebrews describes. This is the person John writes of in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Uh, in verse 19, he says of people who, uh, who are antichrist or allied with antichrist one way or another, they went out from us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they're not all of us. So, in short, I would have to say that this is a person, like the, like the seed that germinates in rocky ground, a person who shows every evidence of being a believer, and yet ultimately turns away from the light that they have, 
from whatever grace God has shown to them outwardly, inwardly, from whatever they have experienced of the word of God, all of these things, and now are in rebellion against that light, rebellion against that truth that God has allowed them to be so close to, that their heart is so inoculated, so cauterized against the gospel, that at least humanly speaking, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Because it's familiar. And that familiarity has bred contempt. And so they are simply crucifying Christ all over again. It's as if they said, well, Jesus, you just need to be on the cross. What you got was right. You're a liar. This is wrong. You deserve to die. I'm gone. Crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding them up to contempt. I think, again, the real question here is not, can the believer lose his salvation? But are you a believer? And it's possible, like that seed germinating in in rocky soil and springing up and being impressive and everyone's excited, or like that seed that germinates in thorny soil and is growing and it's there even as weeds are growing up, getting ready to extinguish it, that it's possible to see someone who, to everyone around them and even to themselves, shows every evidence of being a believer And yet, ultimately, they are not. Now, he gives this warning, and he gives an illustration of this, verses 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain that falls on it produces a crop, which sounds a lot like the parable of the sower, maybe even reflecting the parable of the sower, produces a crop useful for those who say it's cultivated, receive the blessing. But if it bears thorns and thistles, receives the rain, right, but bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, it's near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, that's the warning. Remember the context. He's writing to people, he's concerned about their immaturity, he's concerned about their wavering, and he's warning them, putting it as strongly as he can. Look, you've had the light, you've experienced God's grace in these ways, you've heard the word of God. If you turn back, Don't think you can leave and it's just so easy to repent and come back. If you fall away, it's impossible to restore you again to repentance. He's warning them. Remember the context, his concern, his warnings. But also, we've seen the warning. Notice what he ends with, which is assurance, verses 9 through 12. As dire as these words are, he immediately turns around in verse 9 and says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure of better things, things that belong not to perdition, but to salvation. He's warning them, even as he's confident in them of better things. It's certainly hopeful of it. Verse 10, uh, why is that? Why is he confident? Well, one is the fruit that he has seen. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Now, I'm looking at the original ESV, the 2001 edition. They changed this verse in 2007, and wisely so. Because what mine says, I actually corrected it. What mine says is God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. What's the problem with that? God's not unjust at all, right? God's not so unjust as to overlook your work. Well, of course not, because God is not unjust at all. And so in the 2007, they wisely edited that and made it clear to where it reads, God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work. And the word order means things. Uh, and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you do. Uh, he's saying God notices. I certainly notice the, the fruit that I see. Now, you go back. Judas showed fruit. The seed in, in shallow, rocky soil bore fruit. It seemed to grow. It's, it sprouts up. So we're back to looking at the fruit. He sees fruit, and that's encouraging to him. That's why he is assured of better things in their case, things accompanying salvation. But that fruit must be accompanied by something else. That something else is perseverance. Look at 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do you stay married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years? It's easy. You stay married. You just do it. Now, it's oversimplifying it, but the way to stay married is to stay married. Now, it makes it a whole lot easier if you were loving and kind and patient and all the fruit of the Spirit toward one another. But the fact is, if you remain married for 50 years, you remain married for 50 years. Well, how do you how do you remain a believer? How do you avoid the kind of thing that he's talking about here? Well, you remain a believer. You continue to follow Christ, or as he puts it here, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith continue to trust in Christ and patience following him inherit the promises. Jesus says it's those who persevere to the end who are saved. Really, the fruit is important. The fruit is necessary. But not just the fruit alone. Fruit accompanied by perseverance. By following Christ through thick and thin, through ups and downs, through progress and regression. But following Christ doggedly, perseveringly, gladly to the end. And that's what he's hoping for for them. He's confident of the fruit that he sees. He doesn't put it quite as strongly. He says, we desire each one of you to show this same earnestness, to have this same full assurance for yourselves, perhaps that he has for them, by their perseverance of hope until the end. So they're not sluggish. They're not dim-witted. They're not having learned the basics, the ABCs, over and over again. Certainly not falling away, but they're growing. They're moving forward. They're making progress. They're persevering unto until the end. And that's encouraging. He doesn't end on that note of warning. Uh, we need to hear that note of warning. We don't want to just say, well, of course, I'm a believer, so this doesn't apply to me. Are you? Then bear fruit and persevere in Christ. Make progress. Don't just say, well, I'm a believer. He's talking about fake believers there. He's talking about people who gave every indication to the other, to those around them and to themselves of being a believer. We should be warned. We don't want to water down the brunt of that warning, the force of that warning that he gives to us. Don't just write it off. Well, he's talking about fake believers. He's talking about people who showed every indication of being believers but have fallen away. But at the same time, we don't want to live in fear in the assurance that he has, is, is well-founded for us, for ourselves. Uh, when we see the fruit and when we see that perseverance in following Christ to the end, 
to salvation. Let's pray. Father, this is a, in, in many ways a frightening passage. Father, especially as we know our own hearts, as we know how prone we are to wander, Lord, how attractive sin can be, how sluggish we can be. But Father, we pray uh, above all that you would keep us, hold us firmly in your grip, that not even we ourselves can snatch ourselves from your hand. Father, we thank you for your grace, your sovereign grace. And uh, Father, recognizing salvation is of the Lord, we pray that by your grace we would persevere to the end be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.